are lining up, I uh, just want to invite you to grab uh, one of those black Bibles that is near your chair and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. I don't know the page number uh, right off. 979. Thank you, Monique. Page number 979. So just as a reminder, today is Woodley's last uh, day with us. We're going to be sending him off as part of our uh, service at the end of uh, the sermon. Uh, And it so happens, and we kind of planned it this way, um, that um, the theme of this text uh, is sending. Um, And uh, so what I want to do is to preach this passage uh, in such a way where hopefully we understand what the text is saying. Uh, We can apply it specifically to Woodley, uh, and then we can also um, think broadly about missionaries um, and what they do around the world and what our responsibility is um, to be involved in their lives, okay? So, uh, everybody found page 979, Acts chapter 13. We're going to cover the first 12 verses, and then Z will uh, pick up there uh, next Sunday. All right, so let's pray. And, uh, and then we'll start at Acts 13, verse 1. Lord Jesus, I pray uh, today that uh, as we explore your word, as we seek to honor one of your servants, uh, that our focus would be upon Jesus uh, and that you would be lifted up through this text. You would be lifted up through um, our discovery of you through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Everybody got Acts 13? Page 979, Emily. Uh, All right. Acts chapter 13. I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 12, and then we'll talk about it. I feel like I'm going far away from you guys. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John, that is John Mark, as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished 
at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, so this passage opens up, uh, it kind of kicks off the second half of the book of Acts. We've talked a lot about Peter and John in the first half of the book of Acts. And then in the second half of the book of Acts, the focus shifts. Luke, as he's writing, he shifts the focus to Paul. And this is, <coughs> excuse me, this is really uh, the beginning of where that happens. It doesn't mean that Peter's not mentioned again, but, but uh, Peter kind of fades into the background starting right about now. Um, and, and the setting is the church in Antioch. Now, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I preached on the church at Antioch and how it got started. Who can remind me how it got started? Anybody remember? How did the church at Antioch get started? Anybody? I obviously did a poor job. There were refugees from North Africa and the Mediterranean island of Cyprus who were running for their lives because they were facing persecution. And they went to the Syrian city of Antioch. Uh, right now, that's in modern-day Turkey, but it's right near the border with Syria. Uh, I actually want to visit there, because um, part of my dissertation that I've written is on the church at Antioch, and, and um, I wanted to travel there, but it's, it's too dangerous to go there right now. Um, but maybe one day, that's one of my goals in life, is to go to Antioch, which is just across the border in modern-day Turkey. Um, so these refugees from North Africa and from the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, back in Acts chapter 11, they were running for their lives and they landed in Syrian Antioch and they started preaching the gospel cross-culturally, which hadn't really been done in any sort of organized, systematic way before. Um, there had been some like one-off stuff where, you know, Philip shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch or Peter talked to Cornelius, but this was the first time really where a church emerged where it was more than just Jewish people in the church. And so then we see, about a year or so later, we see a little bit of what this church looks like. It doesn't really describe the church so much as it describes the leadership team of this church. In, in verse 1, it says, In this church at Antioch there were prophets and there were teachers. And then it lists them. There's five different people. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And this list is important for a couple of reasons. It's important because it ends with Saul, and Luke is about to uh, spend 12 or so chapters talking about the missionary exploits of Saul, who's about to be renamed Paul. Um, so the list is important because it, it shows us where Saul comes from. Right? We've seen him saved previously on the road to Damascus. What we oftentimes forget is that then he ended up as a pastor of a church in Antioch. At the end of Acts chapter 11, Barnabas goes and he finds Saul. And together they become pastors of the church at Antioch and they teach there for a year. The guy who would be the Apostle Paul and would travel around starting churches all over the Greco-Roman world. Originally he's a pastor in Syrian Antioch. And he's one of five such leaders in this church. And they're serving together faithfully. They're laboring for the cause of Christ, trying to lead this congregation. Another thing that is notable about this group is that they look like the city of Antioch. They look like probably the church that they pastor. Barnabas, uh, I described before as someone who is from Cyprus. You know that. Ethnically, he's Jewish. Culturally, he's probably not. Uh, he's from the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. 
Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, this, was, uh, this was a very common way of describing, um, uh, they had in Latin, they would have nicknames. And so this is a Latin nickname for Simeon, and it means black. So Simeon, who was called black. So what that tells us is that he is dark-skinned. It doesn't tell us exactly where he's from. We just know that he is dark-skinned because he is referred to as Simon, the one who is called black, the one who is Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is North Africa. Uh, the church that was started in, at the end of Acts chapter 11 is started by refugees from Cyrene, from North Africa. Perhaps <clears throat> Lucius is one of those guys. Menaean a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, who remembers the last thing we heard about Herod? That's the last thing we heard about Herod, right? He got eaten with worms at the end of the last chapter. But Herod is just, there's many Herods, right? There's a whole political dynasty. It's kind of like um, the Kennedys or the Clintons or the Bushes, uh, right? We have these political families and they, they, there's a bunch of them, right? And that's kind of how it was with the Herods. There was a bunch of them, different ones at different times, and they would, they would reign over different parts of, of Israel. This one, Menaean, he's a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That means, and the, the Greek word that's used there means that he's brought up in the royal court with Herod. Some people say it means they had the same wet nurse. They at least had the same teachers. They were raised as companions. So when it was very common... The uh, elite um, aristocratic folks who are going to be the rulers of um, uh, the civilization, they would want their, their sons that they were grooming to be princes, they would want them to have companions, people that uh, would study with them, people that would do athletics with them, people that would kind of be a foil to help them, help them to learn and grow and become the future leaders. Um, Incidentally, Moses was probably a guy like that, raised in Pharaoh's court, viewed as a prince of Egypt, but not quite on the same level as the real guy who would be the prince of Egypt. Menaean comes up in Herod's court as a friend, as a companion, someone who, who is mixing in the circles of power and influence, which is interesting because this church gets started by refugees, people with no power, people with no influence. And so what happens is in this church, you've got a mixture, not just of different cultures, but people from different classes and different walks of life. If we, could, if we could put it in modern terms, it's like one of the pastors of the church is homeless and one works on Wall Street. That's, that's, the, that's the, the stark um, difference here that we've got between people like Simeon called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene. And then on the other hand, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And then finally, you've got Saul. So you've got these five men who are leading this church. They are prophets. They are teachers. And they're just serving God faithfully together. And they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. The entire church is worshiping God, fasting. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So God looks at this church. This church led by five men. And he says, I want you to take those two and I want you to send them out to uh, go spread the gospel in other places. Um, so whose idea is this for the mission? Whose idea is it? The Holy Spirit. 
Uh, this isn't an idea that Saul of Tarsus dreams up. It's not an idea that Barnabas comes up with. This is the Holy Spirit who tells the church, send out these two dudes. Now, these are guys that would be hard to part with. If you had Saul of Tarsus as one of your pastors, you probably wouldn't want to let him go. Right? Because I imagine that for a year there, as he's pastoring the church at Antioch, I imagine that he, you know, for lack of a better term, tried out some of his ideas that would later emerge in the book of Romans, right? As he talks about the great truths of God's salvation, or some of the truths that would later emerge in the book of Ephesians as he waxes eloquent about the doctrine of the church, or things that he would talk about, the beauty of Jesus Christ, things that would later uh, come to bear in Philippians chapter 2 or Colossians chapter 1. All of this stuff, I think the church at Antioch got a sneak preview of it. And so I think it would be very hard, therefore, for them to say, yeah, we will send him. We're not going to hold on to him. Instead, we're going to send him. We want to launch him out. After all, the Holy Spirit had told them to, and... We saw what happens in Acts chapter 5 when you argue with the Holy Spirit. Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit and he died. So when the Holy Spirit shows up and says, send these two guys out, they're probably like, we don't want to be dead. Uh, but we also don't want to lose two of our best leaders. We don't, we don't want this. But they're worshiping the Lord. They're fasting and praying. And so then they lay hands on them and they send them off. In America, we judge churches um, by how big they get, by their budget, by the success and polish of their programs. Oftentimes, we don't judge them by the most important thing, which is how well they send. Uh, J.D. Greer, uh, who happens to be right now the president of our denomination, he says that a church should be judged not by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. And I don't quote that because he's in charge of our denomination right now, but because I think that's what's right here. It's a biblical idea. Churches are to be sending centers. They launch people out. That's why we have done this a few times already, whether it was Kevin, Chris, the Artamis, now Woodley, in the future, perhaps uh, Z. Maybe one day you will lay hands on me and Sonia and send us out. I don't know. But what I know is most important about the church is that we are a people who are committed to sending. We are a people committed to engaging the nations of the world with the hope of the gospel. Maybe you're sitting here and, and um, you feel like God is calling you to be involved in missions. God is calling you. I would say, come and talk to us about that. We would celebrate that. We would, we would be overjoyed um, about that. And we would love the chance, we would love the opportunity to do what they do right here. To fast and pray with you and lay hands on you and send you off to do God's work. But I would say there's also another important lesson here. A lot of people um, will come to their pastor and say, hey, I feel called to go. Um, and they don't have any sort of track record of actually doing anything the least bit missional in their own lives or in their own church. Um, when um, um, if you go to a, a typical mission board, a typical church planting agency and say, hey, I feel called. Uh, they're going to say, okay, tell me about the disciples you have made in the last couple of years. 
Tell me about the neighbors you have won to Jesus or the co-workers that you have shared your faith with. Tell me about the mission trips you've taken. You see, a lot of times we have this perspective that when we feel called, like I'll start living missionally when I get to wherever it is God's calling me. But God has called each of us to be on mission where we are right now. Saul has a great track record. For a year, he is faithfully preaching and teaching the gospel in this church in Syrian Antioch. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he's not like, hey, take some person who has never shared their faith with anyone before and send them to be a missionary. He says, take the, take the best. Take the guy who has a track record, who has demonstrated that he is willing to cross cultural lines with the gospel. He's the guy that I want to send out for the sake of the mission. Um, this is what's going on here. So I would encourage you, if you're someone who you feel like God is speaking to you and God is calling you to be involved in missions, that you start now. You don't know when you're going to get to where God's calling you, but you can live as a missionary now. A church has to be involved in the sending process for missionaries. I don't believe in Lone Ranger Christianity. I don't believe in Lone Ranger missionaries. It is the Holy Spirit who tells the church to send off these two men. And the church celebrates it. Charles Spurgeon uh, is a famous preacher from uh, London, uh, 1800s, I think. And uh, he said, one of the ways that you know that you are called to be a pastor is your church tells you that. It's not the only way. I think he had like four reasons, but that was one of them. Um, if you're... if if uh, the people that know you best say you should not be a pastor, then you should take that as a word from the Holy Spirit that you should not be a pastor. But what we see here is the opposite happening. We see the Holy Spirit saying, these two guys, Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas of Cyprus, I want them. And the church is like, yes, yes to that. We hear the Holy Spirit speaking And we will send them out. A church is involved in the commissioning of every new missionary. Because ultimately it is not mission boards. It is not seminaries that send people. It is not some parachurch organizations that do that. I know they have their place. But ultimately it is churches that plant more churches. And it is disciples that make more disciples. It is the family of God that extends the mission by sending people out. It's what we've done before. It's what we will do again. As I said, perhaps there are people here that we will send out. Could be you. Could be me. You never know what God is going to do. But what we have to do is to be faithful, to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in the word of God, and that we send and develop a culture of sending together. When they get sent off, they go to Cyprus. Now, I think it's probably strategic that they go to Cyprus at first. Because Barnabas is from Cyprus. He's like, this is where I'm from. I know this context. He's like, Saul, you come with me. I'll show you what it's like. And it's interesting. When you read this text, Barnabas is the leader of this missionary team. He's the senior pastor. Saul of Tarsus is the associate. That's kind of the the vibe you get as you read this. Which, with the benefit of hindsight, reading the rest of the Acts of the Apostles and reading all of Paul's 13 letters might sound a little strange to us. We're like, why wasn't Paul in charge? First off, his name isn't Paul yet. 
It's about to become Paul, and that is significant. We'll talk about that in a second. But his name's not Paul yet. His name is Saul, and he is the deputy on this mission team. Barnabas is like, let me take you through Cyprus. Let me show you my people. Let me show you my culture. Let me show you my context. Let's go share the gospel together on Cyprus. So they go down to Seleucia. They hire a ship. The fare for uh, this journey was probably something that was paid for by the church at Antioch. I imagine they sent them off with an offering to cover the fare so that they could go on this journey to Cyprus. Barnabas, his family also comes from some money, so it could be that maybe Barnabas's family is uh, paying uh, for this missionary uh, expedition. But they go from Seleucia and they sail to Cyprus. They also take, verse 5 says, they, they take John Mark with them. Uh, we've talked about John Mark uh, a little bit before. So it's the, th- the three of them. Barnabas, Saul of Tarsus, and John Mark arriving in, according to verse 5, Salamis. I have no idea. There's a lot of names in this passage, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing most of them right. Uh, somebody said uh, one time they asked me, they're like, did they teach you that in seminary? How to say all the words? Like, no, we, we just guess, okay? So, um, but they arrive in Salamis. They proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and they have John as their assistant. So they get there, and what do they do first? They go to the Jewish synagogues. Again, this makes sense to them, and it's a pattern that for the most of Paul's career in the book of Acts, that's what he's going to do most of the time. Not always, but most of the time, he's going to start with the Jewish synagogue. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think they would start with the synagogue? Any ideas? Somebody's afraid to say the wrong answer. It's okay if you say the wrong answer. Woodley might beat you up, but otherwise. I think they went to the synagogue because there was a a common um, understanding, at least of who God was. They had a, a common sacred scriptures, right? At this point, there is no New Testament that has been written. There's some oral traditions that have been passed down. The disciples have seen Jesus. They remember what he said. So far, they haven't really written anything down yet. So, so far, the church has the exact same Bible, the Old Testament, that is prominently displayed in every synagogue. And the early church is preaching from that Bible, how that Jesus is the Messiah, that that Bible, that Old Testament was talking about. And so I think it made a lot of sense for Barnabas and John Mark and Saul of Tarsus to go to the synagogues to start there and say, hey guys, you here on the island of Cyprus, those of you who are Jewish, you have been gathering together waiting for Messiah. We have come over from Syria and Antioch to tell you that he's come. He died only a few short years ago, but don't worry because he's not still dead. He's alive. He's alive. And so they start, and they start there in the synagogue, and then they travel the whole island as far as Paphos, according to verse 6, and they come across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, means son of Jesus. Jesus was a very common name back then, in case you're wondering. Um, so this man, this sorcerer, this son of Jesus, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Verse 7 says that there's this Roman leader, this proconsul, who's in charge of either all of Cyprus or a lot of Cyprus. This is a Roman 
territory. And Sergius Paulus, this intelligent, educated man, he is the one who is ruling. He represents the Roman Empire. He represents authority. He's the government. He's the boss of this island, pretty much. And Bar-Jesus, this Jewish false prophet, this sorcerer, is hanging out with him. It was very common back then for uh, people who have, actually, I guess it's still kind of common today. Uh, government leaders would have religious advisors, religious leaders. Most cultures do this. Our culture does it. Every president will have a group of uh, religious leaders to advise him. Um, that's what's going on right here. Elymas the sorcerer, also called Bar-Jesus, he's hanging out with Sergius Paulus, this Roman proconsul, and he's advising him. Except I think he's doing more than advising him. He's using magic and sorcery to kind of help him divine his fate and figure out how he should govern the island of Cyprus. And verse 9 shows us that there is coming an encounter between the forces of evil and the forces of good, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between Saul of Tarsus and the son of Jesus, Elymas the sorcerer. Verse 9 says, But Saul, also called Paul, come back to that in a second, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Talk about speaking truth to power. He walked into the governor's palace, more or less, saw the governor's religious advisor and said, hey, I know your name means son of Jesus, but you're actually a son of the devil. I don't know how you can be any more um, bold or direct than that, right? And it's interesting, he is, it says specifically he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't it interesting who was it that said that they were supposed to go out on this journey? Whose idea was it first? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to the church. They fasted and prayed. They're like, we better listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sends them off. But the Holy Spirit's not just like, hey, see you, have a good time. The Holy Spirit goes with them. The Holy Spirit fills them. The Holy Spirit empowers them. And so Saul of Tarsus on this island of Cyprus, when he comes up against the enemy, when he comes up against this sorcerer who is trying to work his powers of black magic and dark arts, Saul of Tarsus looks him in the eye and filled with the Holy Spirit, which means controlled by the Holy Spirit, he says, you are a son of the devil, full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, which would have been very common for magicians of that day, right? <clears throat> magicians would mix in... Um, uh, some real magic, um, stuff that, and I don't mean like, like we might think of like card tricks, I'm talking about serious stuff, like maybe like what you think of with voodoo or a santeria or something like that. They had real power, real magic, but then they would also mix it in with a lot of like con man stuff where some of it was just some of it was real, and it was, it was real power tapping into the, the dark world of angels and demons. And then part of it was just pulling the wool over people's eyes, tricking people as a con man. And Saul, also called Paul, tells him, you're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You are a son of the devil, and you are the enemy of all that is right. 
Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? And then it's interesting because and then he, he curses him. He says, look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. And a mist and darkness falls on him and he goes around looking for someone to lead him by the hand. Now, if you go back four chapters to Acts chapter 9, do you remember anybody else who was blinded for a time and had a mist over his eyes and couldn't see? Does that sound familiar? Who was it? Saul of Tarsus, right? So Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he's struck by God with an inability to see for three days. And then Saul looks at this guy who was wielding great power against the name of Jesus, and Saul strikes him with blindness in the name of the Lord. It's not permanent. He says it's for a time. You will not see the sun for a time, and a mist and darkness falls on him. And this guy, this sorcerer, is looking for someone to lead him by the hand. (coughs) And so verse 12 shows us why this power encounter is important. Why does it really matter? All of it's playing out before the watching eyes of the proconsul and probably the entire court. And when the proconsul sees what happens, verse 12 says he believes because he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He, he hears the message. He sees the sign. He's like the, the God that Saul of Tarsus also called Paul. The one that he is talking about clearly is the one true God. Missionaries around the world oftentimes are sucked into, whether they want to or not, these types of power encounters where people will challenge the missionary and say, look, uh, we worship this God. Here's what he can do for us. Is your God real? Is he powerful? What can he do? Reminds me of uh, in the year 724, in Germany, there was a, uh, a missionary by the name of Boniface. And Boniface uh, was trying to reach uh, these people in Germany, uh, and they worshipped uh, the god Jupiter. And there was a tree, a sacred oak tree, the, the Jupiter tree. And anyone who would cut down this tree would be struck down by the gods. It was what the people of, of that particular tribe in Germany thought. So Boniface, feeling called as a missionary to that people group, what do you think he went and did? He gathered them together and he cut down the tree in front of them. Some serious, serious chutzpah. He goes, he swings the axe, and he gets ready to hit it again because, as you know, if you've cut down a tree, you don't just topple it with one one uh, blow. But as he prepares to hit it again, a blast of wind comes through, knocks the tree down, and shatters it. And all the people gathered decide that the God of Boniface must be the one true God. Jupiter, he's impotent. He's powerless. They thought this tree was significant. They thought that Jupiter and all the gods and goddesses of their mythology would strike down Boniface, but it didn't happen. Instead, the god of Boniface, coming through the wind, struck down their tree. Missionaries in every culture and in every era have to engage in power encounters like this. 
It looks different depending on your culture. It looks different depending on the moment in history in which you stand. Sometimes it's going to seem much more sophisticated and nuanced. Sometimes it's going to seem like you're talking to the witch doctor who's trying to put a hex on your kids as you're trying to reach a village for Christ. If that sounds weird to you, I would just say our missionary brothers and sisters around the world tell us hundreds upon hundreds of stories of those very sorts of things happening. Where they have to square off, like Saul of Tarsus does here, against the forces of evil. These power encounters here in America, um, those power encounters can look different. But what we have to do is we have to unmask the idols of every age. Because I think in America, the idols are very good at dressing up and wearing a mask. What we have to do is tear the mask off to show that this idea that animates American culture is nothing short of idolatry. We tear the mask off. That's what missions work is. Tearing the mask off to point that there is one true God and his name is Jesus. And he is Lord. And this God that has been unmasked is nothing but a representation of a dark power that actually has no power. That's what missions is. Now, why is it significant that his name gets changed in the middle of this? It says in verse uh, 9, Saul, also called Paul. And then from then on out, pretty much every time he's mentioned, he's called Paul. What is the significance of that? Well, I've, I've uh, read and heard lots of different things. Uh, I think there's a lot of urban myths about this. Um, I've, heard, I've heard people wax eloquent about how the name Saul means this, but then God gave him a new name and it means this, and it's so much better. Um, that preaches really well. It's just not true. Okay, So uh, I don't want to burst your bubble, but it is important to be accurate. It is important to be biblical. Saul and Paul mean the same thing in just two different languages, okay? What happens is Saul has been ministering in a Jewish context, more or less. But now as he goes out on this missionary journey, he's going to be ministering in an almost exclusively Gentile context. This is Paul's Latin name. This is the name that is going to make sense when Paul is hanging out with people like Sergius Paulus, who actually happens to have his name. So Paul is in a Roman consul's palace, and he introduces himself. They're like, who are you? Is he going to use his Jewish name, or is he going to use his Roman name? He's going to use his Roman name. If you have two names, and and usually back then they would have three names, sometimes four, um, and you would use it differently based on which culture you went to, right? You would go by the one that makes the most sense of your context, and that's what Paul does. And Luke, writing it, he's like, yeah, it's almost like Paul's identity shifts here. He was doing ministry to Jews as a Jew, but now he is doing ministry to the nations as someone who is from the nations. Saul also called Paul. And I think we see in there just a hint of the creativity that's to come. Because Paul adapts himself to every new context that he goes to. It can be very common to think, well... Preaching the gospel is preaching the gospel. It's always the same. It always sounds the same. And it's true that the content of the gospel is always the same. 
But how do you explain it is different based on whether you're talking to kindergartners or whether you're talking to 30-year-olds or whether you're talking to uh, a literate culture that can read it or whether you're speaking to an oral culture that only hears it or whether you're speaking to people who, uh, in this language, they don't even have a word for grace, and so you have to figure out how to explain it. So all of these things are sort of culturally conditioned, and so what missionaries have had to do, starting right here, is to say, how do we express the gospel, the unchanging truths of the gospel, how do we explain it in this culture, in this language, to this people, in this moment in history? And as we cover the next... 13 or 14 chapters in the book of Acts, we're going to see that Paul preaches one sermon after another, and none of them are the same. Because he's preaching to a different audience. He's engaging a different people. He's talking to a different people group. And so, even though he's got the same gospel, and you can see the same threads and the same themes, how he explains it is different. On the one hand, he can appeal to the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. He can appeal to the Pentateuch when he's talking to people who are Jewish. On the other hand, he can quote Greek poets when he's standing on Mars Hill in Athens. Because Paul is creative. And what missionaries have to do when they cross cultural lines and go here or go there or go here or go there, the task is not to say, how can we do it just like the church I came from? But what makes sense in this context? As we launch out Woodley today and he goes to a new church or returns to an old church, his goal is not going to be to say, how can I do things just like we did at Mosaic? His goal is going to be what makes sense in this context. How do I faithfully express the gospel and how do we faithfully follow the Bible in this context? And it looks different in every context. It looks different in every culture. It looks different from city to city. It looks different from country to country. It looks different from era to era of church history. There's been a lot of variety over the last 2,000 years, but the constant is the gospel. The constant is the unchanging truth of scripture, but it gets, it gets plunked down into every culture, into every space, and the roots go down. And something sort of indigenous emerges, and it looks a little different here than it does over there. That's why uh, missionaries uh, start churches all over the world that, that don't look like ours. They preach the gospel, but the church doesn't look at all like ours, and that's okay. Because the goal is not replication. The goal is multiplication. That new churches start, that new disciples are made, that new leaders are raised up. This is the task of missions. There has to be a commissioning. We see that at the beginning. And there has to be a confrontation with the forces of evil. We see that as Saul, also called Paul, squares off against the sorcerer. It also has to be creativity and missions. Now, maybe you're thinking, what, what do I do with this? How does this apply to me? We're going we're gonna to pray over Woodley and, and um, uh, do what these first three verses say. We're going to pray over him. But what I want us to do is we're, as we're thinking about this, um, those of us who go have a responsibility and those of us who stay have a responsibility. <coughs> maybe you're feeling... Like you're supposed to go one day. Maybe you're like, one day I feel like this could be me. And what I would say is, um, prepare now to be sent later. Remember what I was talking about, like, make disciples now. Share the gospel now. Be faithful now. Um, Because 
you know, when, when you invest in the stock market, um, they, say, they, they say the past is not a, not a perfect predictor of the future, but you look at this particular portfolio, it's got a good track record, so you can invest in it, probably going to get good returns. Can't guarantee it, but probably going to get good returns. It's the same thing with missions. What's your, what's your track record look like? Have you been a faithful disciple maker? If you have, then you are the kind of person that the Holy Spirit wants to say to the church, send them out. Send them out. Don't hold on to them. They are more than God's gift to the, this church. They are God's gift to the world. So send them. Um, maybe you're the one who's supposed to stay. Um, sometimes we have this uh, idea um, that uh, it's grand and glorious to go and the losers are those who stay. Sometimes that is the message that gets communicated uh, in Christianity and I, and I want to make sure that's not what you hear me saying today. My kids love to sing and dance to the song that Unspoken does called uh, Start a Fire uh, in My Soul. And so they were watching uh, yesterday, I was watching with them and the kids are dancing around and, and uh, uh, it's, this, it's their music video. And I was watching the music video, I liked the song, but as I was watching the music video, I was like, I'm really struggling with the visuals here because what they're doing, this guy's going to work and he's singing that God would start a fire in his soul. And he's going to work every day and he's working at a gyro shop. And he looks at his apron, he's like, oh, I gotta go to work today. And he puts it on and then he goes the next day and he puts it on, and he puts it on, and all the while he's singing, God, would you do something in me? And eventually he's liberated, and he gets to quit his job and go tell people about Jesus, or at least sing about Jesus. It's like, I feel like the message of this video, there's, there's some truth there, but there's also something that can be warped. Because following Jesus is not about quitting my job and moving around the world. Maybe that will be what you're called to do one day. But right now, what it means is putting on your apron and going to the gyro shop and going to work and being faithful there and sharing the gospel there. If you're a full-time mom, share the gospel with your kids. If, if you have a job, share the gospel with your coworkers, with your neighbors. Like, we put on the apron. It's not that we get liberated and we can throw it down and one day we can be real missionaries. No, it starts now. Second, I would, say, I would say we have a responsibility to pray. Verse 3 says that they, they fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them. Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas and John Mark needed prayer because of what they were about to walk into. They had no idea they were about to meet a sorcerer and have this power encounter. The church back in Antioch didn't know what they were about to walk into, but the Holy Spirit did. And so they're praying. You and I have a responsibility to pray for our missionaries. We have a responsibility to pray for the people that we've sent out. Whether it's Kevin, whether it's Chris, whether it's Lorenzo and Metheny, like stay connected with them, stay praying for them. Don't just be like, all right, they're gone, they're out of sight, they're out of mind. No, they are our responsibility. We send, we stay connected, and we stay prayed up for them. And we also, those of us who stay, have a responsibility to give. Um, a lot of what we do with our offerings is to give to uh, a group called the International Mission Board that starts churches around the world. And then we give directly to people like Chris and his food truck ministry trying to share the gospel with people here in New York City. We're not all called to go. We are all called to be missional and to share the gospel where we are. 
but many of us are called to stay. And that means we have a responsibility to financially support those who are called to go. Because they can't do the same things that we do. And we can't do the same things that they do. We need each other. It's a team team sport. So um, what I want to 